team. Welcome to episode 97 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. We've seen private equity firms and DSOs shake up the dental industry over the past few years. This constant buzz is causing practice owners to question whether this is the route for them as opposed to a traditional private practice sale. It may even cause a little FOMO where owners think they might miss out on these high multiples if they don't take a deal now or at least explore it. Is this indeed the appropriate route for you as as a practice owner? Does your practice qualify? We'll provide insight to the common questions that sellers have surrounding PE firms and DSOs in this episode and hopefully provide a little clarity amongst all the smoke. Hello, Mr. Loretto. How are you? Ms. Radcliffe, good to see you in studio in today. Studio. <laughs> you know, uh, I think we do a little catch up on how our kids are doing it because this idea came recently when someone came up to me and said, I've listened to so many of these podcasts. I feel like I know your family. I know the kids. And, you know, how are Cole and Bella doing? So I was like, all right, you know, let's give them an update. Let's you know? do it. Yeah. Like a formal so, update. So you've got Cole, the six seven Loretto, big guy. He got his bachelor's in psychology from Oklahoma. He is now working with young kids right now, and then he's applying for his master's program. So dad just wrote a big check for some company, I don't know who they are, <laughs> to help him with just the application process because it's a little overwhelming for the child. But uh, he doesn't listen to this episode, so I, he's not going to really care. I call him a child, but he's a lovely kid. He really is. So he's so crazy. He's sweet, 23 years years old, same girlfriend since high school. Hopefully they'll end up. She's a good catch for him. But yeah, Cole is doing great. And then of course, Isabella, she's following along with her father's footsteps, stumbled a little bit along the way in college, but that's okay. Because dad's dad stumbled a little bit. And the reason I say this with a big grin on my face is she's back on track. She's doing amazing. She's, uh, you know, at straight A's this semester and just finding her way. She's 21, just doing fantastic. And then, of course, my bonus two kids, I've got uh, Braden and Bryce. And Bryce is finally my one of the four is an accountant. Uh, he is uh, going through the accounting program at Arkansas. And I got Braden up at North Texas. And he is 22. And he's really into fashion. You know, he's into stuff. He buys stuff. He has like a big Jordan collection. He thrifts. He buys stuff for $10 and sells it for 40 or buys it for 10 and sells it for 500 You really have the gamut yeah, from he's a like an option standpoint. 100% like gamut. You've got the you've got yeah. the accounting and marketing. Yeah, there's and... probably one rule follower and a couple of them that don't follow the rules. Uh, I'll let you kind of figure that mm-hmm. out, but everybody's doing good. So anyway, I know you know this, but I would just share to our listeners. So but give I'm, us the update. You know, it's so interesting because I know this, but at the same time, I still, when you say like Cole and Bella in my head, they're like, you know, you still have to go kids. pick them up from high school and I middle know. school when I started. And now we're like 23. I, I think know. I got married when I was 23. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Lila is my oldest. She's 13. Long leg Lila. She's like a giraffe. Like, I mean, she's also not fully in control of her legs. We're still a little clumsy, but she's beautiful. She's got had braces and had them off. So now I'm an orthodontic parent and she is in seventh grade. So she loves all things that middle school girls like skincare and makeup and smart and funny. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Yes. I I mean, I might have influenced that a smidge. And then my youngest is eight, Bryn. Or like she said, everyone calls me Brian, (laughs) Uh, but Bryn, and she's eight and she's wicked smart and very logical 
and ask the hardest questions at this point. She's well smarter than Chris and I and just still super, super sweet. You know, like it makes you realize how quickly they grow from ages like 10 to 13. They really do become like this other being. So I'm really hoping that she stays sweet for a little longer. Are you getting any cuddles with Lila anymore? Is she still okay? Every now and then I'm allowed to cuddle. Okay. Um, And every now and then I'm allowed to be like the cool mom. Yeah. But for the most part, I keep my distance and wait until I'm allowed to come in. Have you ever seen that Jennifer Garner skit where she's like comes on Saturday Night Live and she's like, I feel like having a teenager is you walk in the room and you're like, so, you know, we might have dinner. Like, I don't know if you want to join us. I mean, just an option. <laughs> like, that's a, that's what I feel like I'm entering. So it's been super fun, though. But it's fun to be able to watch them grow and the other side of our worlds that aren't in this building and in this podcast booth. Prayer and alcohol. That's what I say. <laughs> Key to parenting. Prayer, alcohol. We'll keep going there. <laughs> well, I think this is an interesting topic. One that I have recently been splitting my world into the for private sure. practice world and the DSO private equity world. For those that don't know who listen to us and loyal listeners, we have another affiliate that is called Seven Pillars that only works in the DSO transition space. So NDP clearly were focused on private transitions and Seven Pillars is DSO transitions. And really that came to be, I'm sure much like NDP came to be when you created it, it Seven Pillars was kind of like, hey, we had these clients who were, this is clearly a transition option. And I said in the intro, you know, the FOMO and they're getting offers and they don't know what to do with them. And is this the right for me? Is it not? And we didn't really have a service to help them. And if we're based in education and based in making sure people do the right thing for them, right, in their practice, sometimes that was the right route, right? And so we created Seven Pillars so that we could be the educational resource to say, hey, this makes sense for you. And if it makes sense for you, do it in the right way and get the best offer you can. Just like on the NDP side, we say, hey, this is a no-brainer type practice. Here's what you need to do to make sure you land it and become an owner of it. So this episode really comes from us having kind of that knowledge and both of those courts, but then also all the questions that we get from sellers, even if they're looking for a private buyer, they're asking, right. still asking these questions. Yeah, I just think when I'm speaking at dental school or a residency program, I'm speaking at a state meeting, a national meeting. If I'm in a Cane Waters consult with one of our 3,000 clients, if I'm an NDP talking to the private buyer, private seller, talking about transition, the topic of private equity valuations is an everyday every hour conversation Mm -hmm. that we have being in the space of the dental transition world. And it's a conversation that is, it's literally taking over a lot of conversations. So thankful for what your team does on the NDP side, thankful for our seven pillars team to basically be able to filter out all of that noise and to filter out what is kind of out there and what doesn't make sense. So I'm looking forward to us just talking about the agenda we've got here, start with some pros and cons. And so why don't you kind of take it away and tell us what you see from your experience working with private owners that are kind of going into this private equity potential transition. What are some of those pros that you see for them to kind of go down these roads? Yeah, I think one of the main pros, which I don't think is what most people expect it to be when they go into this process, and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit, but I think one of the main pros is taking the risk off the table from a transition standpoint right? Like most people who are going to enter this DSO world are still going to keep working, right? They're not retiring and they're not done. And so I think a lot of them are surprised that they can, in those times post-closing with one of these DSOs, the relief they feel of knowing they have a transition plan and that that risk and those chips have been taken off the table, I think is a huge pro. Now, of course, that goes across whether it's a private buyer or a DSO buyer, but I think in a DSO buyer, if I'm a private practitioner who still wants to practice for two or three, four or five years, being able to know 
know that I don't have to worry about transitioning the practice in my fourth or fifth year is something that's a benefit for them. I think it's also helpful for those practices that don't have an easy solution, right? I'm not just a one doctor practice in a good location with a decent overhead that can find one person to take me over. I'm maybe a multi-doc practice or multi-specialty practice, or I'm in a really tough geographic location. You know, those practices don't have a lot of options for a private market. And so these DSO and private equity and corporate groups, you know, however they show themselves is an option for those people who might have a tougher transition plan in a DSO market. Yeah. So let me comment there. So, you know, example, because I'm always the example guy, uh, <laughs> a $3 million, $4 million GP practice, there's, let's call it $4 million, And there's three GPs and in, in the hygiene department that's, that's putting up this kind of $4 million number. There's a risk for that one owner. Yep. Okay, so either A, we need to create evaluation on the private practice side, put a value, and then we need to determine, are these two associates partner-worthy? Are they driven? Do they want to be here? You know, we've got to explore that for sure. But when you're going down those roads and for whatever reason doesn't make sense for those parties, maybe including you, then yeah, you're basically pulling some of the chips off the table. It could also be a single doctor practice. It could be, you know, this two plus million dollar, could be a GP, could be a specialist. But, you know, in this case for a GP, you know, it could be a two and a half million dollar practice. And you might say, is that possible? Yeah, we mm-hmm. see those. These are some super producing, incredible top line numbers. They've done a ton of CE. Their risk is they're the only doctor. Mm-hmm. You mean one bad thing happens to them, and next thing you know, you'd have to bring in two or three associates into that practice to keep that. So removing the risk is for sure something that I think that every business owner has to look at and try to mitigate for sure. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think another thing that most people don't expect or are looking for, you know, if you are a seller, you work by yourself, you've always worked by yourself, you've owned this practice, sometimes the partnership of whatever group you join turns out to to be a big pro because now instead of being on an island by yourself as a solo practitioner, you still get to practice by yourself in your own practice. But maybe now you have a group of doctor owners that work across the country or in your state right. where you can kind of pull on those people. You have the back office support. If you're with a DSO is lucky enough to have that back office support. Now you have questions. You can ask someone about an HR question. You can ask someone about, you know, a legal question that you get. So I also think the support and kind of not being on an island is another pro of joining these groups. Now, clearly not all DSOs are created equal. Not all DSOs have a close group of partners, owners, or a great back office and HR team and accounting team and billing team. That's up to you to do your diligence of that. But if you are lucky enough to be a part of one of those groups, then I think that can be a pro that maybe you don't get in a private sales situation, but you maybe don't need in a private sales situation because you're not working back longer term and you are kind of, it is your retirement plan. So I think clearly the financial benefit, that's another pro that I think we'd be remiss not to mention, but the financial benefit of that of most of these sales can be very lucrative if you've negotiated your deal, the equity portion and the cash portion and understanding that piece is, is a big boon. One thing I just want to reiterate is picking that right partner. Oh, I mean, gosh. it is absolutely so important. And sometimes the only thing I swear the sellers are like, I got an 8X, 9X, 10X. And they're just looking at this multiple and they just, all they want to do is one up their buddy because mm-hmm. I got a 10X versus a 9X. I'd much rather have a six and a half or a seven X number just because I partner with the right person. I mean, you want that. I mean, yeah. Basically your bet in this game is that I am better off with them for those exact things you just mm-hmm. talked about. So the risk, the opportunity you're going to be able to grow, the opportunity that you've got maybe more support on the back office side, you've got maybe some clinical things that perhaps other doctors mm-hmm. can bring. You've got the flexibility 
flexibility on time. There's just a lot of things that you want to be really clear about and making sure that partner. I like proven partners. I'd much yeah. rather take maybe a lower offer with somebody who is proven with tens or twenties or a hundred other doctors that can testify of what a great partnership this has been because it's an immediate marriage. You are mm-hmm. marrying at the it's altar. A Unlike the associate route where you associate, you get to know them, you can break up, mm-hmm. right? This is no breakup. You're signing documents. They're handing over money. This is very difficult to get out. I can't stress enough. Pick the right partner and certainly have somebody guide you through this process. Very self-serving. I know that's what the Seven Pillars does, but man, somebody like that, I think they do a great job, but making sure you, you get the right guidance through this process is, is so, so critical. Yeah. Life after sale is a really important thing that I think a lot of people start the process with, but then the money and the big numbers kind of get in the way of that. But kind of keeping that focus is really important because there are cons in these 100%. types of sales, right? You know, you are trading money, right? For time in a way, right? Like in a private sale, we're going to get less of a purchase price, but we oftentimes are not going to have all the strings that are attached to it, right? We're not going to have to work back as an employee for five years. We are not going to have to get our money in equity and cash. We're going to get it all in cash in a private sale. So there truly are cons. And I use that word and I'm not using air quotes, but I could because they're cons if you don't do your homework and don't understand what you're getting into. Right. Right. They're cons because they are different than what a private sale is. But they're big cons if you Mm -hmm. don't understand what you're getting into Mm -hmm. and can very much impact your life. So definitely loss of control, longer work back. And then, you know, again, choosing that right partner. If you don't choose the right partner and you got a big portion of what that big purchase price was in equity and then that company doesn't do great well then now you know the financial boon that you thought you had you probably don't have if that company doesn't do well and doesn't recapitalize or doesn't or falls through right worst case scenario so doing your homework to make sure that the partner you choose reiterating what you just said is how you avoid or do your best to avoid these cons and then understanding yourself right Mm -hmm. like understanding like what you're getting into and what your capacity is and I don't mind working back for five years. Five years is a really long time if Mm -hmm. you're not prepared mentally for it or physically for it um, Mm -hmm. and are just thinking that the money will make it okay. That's not always the case. Yeah, you can take a restaurant business that's very, very hard to get into and to be successful. And you've got one business that has 100 locations with proven systems and I don't know, it's a franchise model. They have got it dialed in and they got the business plans. They know exactly where they're going to go to get from 100 to 200. And then you've got the 95% fail rate of starting up office number one. And so that's where, again, want to caution just partnering with that because a part of this is basically I'm going to bet that we are going to be better by being partnered together because I know for a fact what I'm giving up. I'm giving up my cash. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was making $700,000 today as an owner, I know for a fact that I, that number is going to be cut. Maybe it's to $300,000. i am going to give up $400,000, and I'm going to give it up over five years. That is $2 million that I'm giving up. Mm-hmm. And I may get that on the front end, but there is going to be some type of break-even that I know. My financial advisor has, has clearly explained to me. You know, I, I know how this transaction is going to work. I know I'm going to be giving up, you know, maybe some tax planning. I know I'm giving up the amount I'm saving my pension plan. I know I'm going to give up maybe some control, but the cash up front and some of this risk off the table with my due diligence and confidence that this particular company I'm going to partner with still outweighs Mm -hmm. everything I just told you that was a negative and Mm -hmm. what was the con. And so this is a very, very tough exercise to go through. It's something that you deal with constantly. I know we deal with it daily here at at Kane Waters with every consult that people are just asking these questions like, how does this work? Is this a fit for me? My friend did this and that. There's a lot 
that really has to be completely thought out before you can really execute this correctly. 100%. I was confident that EBITDA was not going to be in my vocabulary (laughs) entering this job. Boy, was I wrong. Okay, so we did kind of a quick overview of pros and cons. I think the main question that we wanted to cover today, and then kind of we'll do some follow-up on that, but the main question is what types of practices are appropriate or inappropriate for a PE-DSO transition, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of practices, right? If I think about the whole global population of practices that are out there, DSOPE is not a route for a majority of them, but they're a good route for some of them, right? Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about qualifications or let's talk about the practices that are a great fit, maybe those that are a poor fit, and then maybe those that are kind of in the middle and it's going to depend on, you know, you and your situation, whether you're a fit. So typically that answer is a large practice. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's a large practice on a top line. You're probably talking for the most cases, like two plus million dollar type practices with really good overheads, which gets you to that EBITDA. The EBITDA as well has to do with hygiene from a general practice. Mm -hmm. So in general, the $2 million practice, 50% overhead sounds amazing. But when you really look into it, it's a four chair practice. And this is a doctor that does everything themselves. It's a super doctor. They've got billboards. They've got this marketing. They're only looking for this certain type of patient and uh, three and a half days a week. And they're somehow doing all these magical, you know, giant numbers. We start running those calculations out of how much I got to pay that doctor back because it's all restorative and a very small hygiene practice. The EBITDA shrinks to a very low number. And then number two, the risk factor is this senior guy is incredible. So the difficulty to try to replace him is next to impossible. I know that, you know that, and every DSO in this country knows that. So Mm -hmm. what they love is they actually love to see bread and butter type practices. They love to see big hygiene practices. They love to see space. They want to see minimum six chairs in these practices. They want to see that you're not marketing. They want to see the upside of this business. They want to see the $4 million practice I talked about earlier, where the senior doctor is doing a million in two days a week, and the associates are doing a million, and it's all bread and butter and hygiene. And before I pay doctors, it's got a really low overhead. That's exactly what they're looking Mm -hmm. for. If it's an oral surgery practice, they want to see that it's got some 40% overhead, the same in endodontics. If you've got some 55% overhead in endodontics, guess what? There's no hygiene. You know, so I've got some high overhead endodontic or specially practice like surgery or or, or pros. There's no cash. There's no profit after they pay you. There's no profit because, you know, my replaceability, if something happens to that specialist, is I got to go pay them maybe 40% Mm -hmm. to replace. So if I've got some 55% overhead and I got to pay somebody 40%, there's no money left over. Yeah. Right. Five, six percent. No one's going to buy a business because your EBITDA is so low. So why would you sell it? So this thing makes sense when you've got a really big top line, amazing top five, 10 percent as far as your overhead compared to your specialty or as a GP across the board. And you've got the space. Ideally, they love major markets, you know, mm-hmm. get me a they don't like the rural area. They're not saying they're not going to do it. Uh, well, but, and that might be a particular buyer, right? Like a particular yeah. partner buyer might say, hey, we focus. There's a couple of those that we've seen where they focus on rural, but you're not going to be able to get like five or six partners, right? You're going to have your options you, as a practice is going to be fewer depending on where you are. True. Yeah. Instead of 200 maybe private equity buyers, you're down to two. Yeah. Because these two prefer East Texas, Correct. you know, practices that are this type and they've got 10. 
yeah. they're looking to continue to grow in this area and maybe expand to Louisiana, Arkansas that are not far away. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I think too, like another consideration too, if we think about like, let's say you are the person that has that big practice and the big EBITDA and the, you know, low overhead, there's room for growing and, you know, you matter as well. You matter probably a lot. You've helped build this thing. And so they want you to remain. And so if you say, Hey, I'm only really willing to work for two more years, it doesn't matter how great your practice is. You are probably not a fit for a DSO, right? right? Because that buyer partner is going to want you to hang around because they are, as much as they are investing in your practice, they are investing in you. Mm -hmm. And so you being able to continue doing what you've been doing for three to five years, I will say most of the time it's five years. It's very rare to see less Then that is what they want. So, you know, they want you to keep working at the same speed too, right? So like if you're saying, Hey, I'm happy to work, but I'd like to work one day a week. It's probably not going to be a good fit. fit for a DSO, right? So then your option is, well, what is my option, right? And so then that's the goal of this conversation we're having today is what are your options? And if your practice fits this size and this finish out and in EBITDA and overhead and all those pieces, well then, okay. And you personally have those goals of working longer and kind of being able to do that, then maybe this is a fit for you, right? And if not, then kind of what are your other options? So let's talk about the other extreme, right? What is someone who is not a fit? Everyone else? Yeah. <laughs> these, sm these smaller practices, I mean, this million-dollar practice that a 55% overhead, that it's just not there. And it's it's exactly what orthodontic practices have amazing EBITDA. And that's why you've seen so much opportunity in that space for basically if you're the owner, that they have many of those very, very successful practices do command a big EBITDA, do command. And so what we're seeing now in the orthodontic space is there are none of those big practices for sell anymore. They're all it's super small. Kind of like a million, million, five or less practice. It's typically, is, it's the only thing that's there. So it's the overheads that are in the 60% they're just it's not going to make sense for the seller or for the buyer. I mean, I, mean, I guess it could make sense for the buyer. They're just going to offer a very low valuation, yeah. you know, uh, with these commitments and also with your decrease in pay. So it's probably not going to make very much sense for you from a financial perspective. So I would say in general, Christy, is let's say it this way. If you've got an overhead of 55% or higher, it's really hard to really make a strong case for a private equity sell on practices that are doing less than a million and a half. Yeah. Okay. You give me a $4 million practice that's got a 55% overhead, absolutely, I can show you. Uh, Unless you have a really, really strong hygiene, right? Unless the doctor production is very minimal in your practice, I agree. I mean, I think that these groups are, again, it's an investment. So they are wanting to make sure that the EBITDA that they have right, is 400K or probably more after mm -hmm. they've paid you to do the work, right? They need to be able to have a profit from you. We've seen groups that have said, hey, anything under 500, we're not interested. We've seen groups say- On the dollar amount of yeah, EBITDA, correct. right? Yeah, anything under 500 of after doctor profit, essentially, is what we're talking about. But anything, we've seen groups that say, hey, if you have less than 1,500 active patients, we're not interested. Yep. If you have less than 20 new patients a month, we're not interested, right? So every group is going to have its own dynamic that they're looking for. But in general, they're looking for opportunity, right? And that's kind of what they're wanting to see. And they're wanting to see stability, Stability yep. and profit, right? And those two things are kind of what those active patient and new patients and the profitability, that's where those things come from. The funny thing, when you mention all that, that's exactly what any buyer wants, right? <laughs> that's a private practice buyer wants to see that. They want to see yeah. growth, the stability. So we're on the same boat for any buyer, or any bank. It's the same process. 
No, I think there's a lot of commonality there because, again, we're talking about valuing yeah. buying the business. We have found some practices that fall into this, right? We have found buyers and partners who are traditionally looking for one type of practice, and they might not be interested in, let's say, a specialty, but because of where they are and because of the practices they already have, they're open to taking on maybe a practice that is outside of their wheelhouse because it creates synergies for them, right? So example being maybe the buyer already owns a bunch of orthodontic practices and they are now willing to look at maybe an oral surgery practice that is nearby because they have a need for it because they need to refer people out to it. And maybe this oral surgery practice by itself doesn't meet the criteria, but because of the other locations and the other people they have on board, they're willing to buy that in conjunction, right? So we're also seeing synergies amongst specialties and amongst groups that maybe only focused on general, but now they're willing to buy a perio or an ortho or a pedo because they have enough concentration in one area of others to make those investments worthwhile to them. Again, they can grow them because now sure. they have the referral pattern to do so. Yeah, the pedo ortho oral surgery is definitely a kind of a common yep. theme right now. And sometimes you go pedo a couple of times and you add the ortho, and then at some point you get big enough. It's like, well, how much oral surgery are we, mm-hmm. you know, giving out? So either a, let's go acquire the surgeon, or can we get somebody maybe give them some type of equity and let's do a startup for them if in a unique yep. situation. One thing I want to add that we haven't really touched on is when the buyer is looking at your practice, and again the NDP valuation or private equity or a bank or investment group, whatever it is. Just remember, when we're looking at this EBITDA, we want to see clean financial statements. So I can't stress enough about having really good, clean financial statements. Big picture, top line revenue, and we've got nice direct expenses with team costs have been identified, nice lab, nice supplies. we got direct costs that, you know, again, very organized and, and kind of below where they compare to your peers. Nice fixed cost below because you've got a big top line. And then if your accountant is not calculating your EBITDA and you're thinking about potentially going down this road, I, I would challenge you that you're not ready. We really need to focus on really good, clean accounting financial statements so we can focus on your profitability so that we can take all these additional dollars that we earn over the next 6, 12, 18 months and literally multiply that times a seven or eight. Okay, let me say it differently. You've got a $2 million business and we work for the next year and we somehow improve the efficiencies to that practice of 5%. We took off a little credit card. We took off a little, you know, the lab. We focused on supplies. We focused on our team. We grew it just a little bit. And now all of a sudden we've made the practice 5% more efficient or a hundred more thousand dollars. You literally can look at this as if I just did that, then I just added approximately $700,000, from a valuation standpoint to my business for making those decisions over the last year. So again, focusing on that profit, because I promise you, if you ever go down these roads and you do partner with them, you know what the first thing they're going to do is? You're going to clean your financial statements. The second thing they're going to do, they're going to look at your chart of accounts. So they're going to look at your individual vendors and they're going to give you, instead of this supply from this company, instead of this handpiece from this company, and you pay an X dollars, they're going to switch this around for you to get that EBITDA fixed and they're going to do it on their dime, but that's increasing profit to them. So why not do this ahead of time? Get your house in order, good clean financial statements, make sure your financial plan, this makes sense for, then make sure your practice is the right EBITDA, then let's make sure that if 
again, if you're this small percentage of groups that definitely this makes sense for, then let's go shop for potentially that right buyer. But guys, if I'm speaking to you, Christy speaking to you today, and this is, you do have this very successful kind of high-end practice with, you know, a lot of profitability and a lot of EBITDA, it's amazing. But if you're not, then if you're thinking about ever going down this road, then you got to get your house torn. You got to clean this up and have stretch goals with, you know, your top line and, then, and have all these goals with how we're going to really mitigate a lot of our expenses through good controls. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and, and you don't know what these numbers are until you do the homework and figure out what that is and pay attention to your financials. And newsflash, this is the same thing you want to do if you're selling to someone privately, right? I was lucky enough to talk to some students last week as part of the program you're teaching. And I did kind of a P&L 101 primer. And I showed a collection of financials and I just literally had Brandy, our transition coordinator, pull just examples, right? And clearly blacked out the people's names and everything, but I didn't tell her what I was doing with them. I just said, hey, pull seven examples. And she pulled them and there were so many bad profit and losses that we have been exposed to over the last 10 years, right? And so when I'm showing the students these, their first question, which these students are going to be the buyers of your practices, right? Like not these particular ones, but this level of student, right? For a private practice, these private practice buyers are who are going to buy your practice. And their first question was like, why would anyone not pay attention to their like profit and loss and their financials and their, you know, and there's a moment of like, it was a little bit naive because we all know life happens and things happen and it's just a lot. But these students, right, that are coming up, just like these DSO and private equity buyers are going to continue to get more educated. They're smart, right? They're going to be looking at these things. And so as a seller, whether I'm DSO driven path or I have a private buyer path, I want to present my practice in the best light to get the best value and to show whatever buyer it is that I am know what my stuff is, right? And I've got my stuff together and the process and the practice is a good investment. Mm-hmm. And so cleaning up your financials and doing all those pieces is like just incredibly foundational for if, a transition. If you clean it up, it's organized, you make more money. Number two, it's going to add more value to the private. Number three, it's going to add more value on your private equity yeah. side. There is no downside. No. To, or I may make more money. Yeah, Line just, the yeah, go back to number one. Just make <laughs> more money. So the last thing I wanted to cover, and I think, again, we're not intentionally trying to make this span private and DSO. It's just this is, I think, just, again, foundational and transition is if this potentially is a route, whether you are the $4 million practice or you're the $1.5 million practice that has a great overhead, you know, wherever you are, right? I think if you are going to look to transition to a DSO or private equity group, you have to think about what your why is, Right. Clearly, like if you are smart and do it in the right way, you're going to hire someone like us or you're just going to be educated about it and you're going to get the best financial deal you can get, right? Like let's just assume that is going to happen. You have to understand why you're doing this and what you need for this to solve for you, mm-hmm. right? If we're simply doing this about the money, it's not going to work, right? Because there are a lot of strings attached here. So you have to know your why, you have to know your timeline, you have to be comfortable, you have to know what you're looking for, and you have to be ready to put in some work, right? Like we don't just assume that we get married without dating and going on a lot of bad first dates and answering a lot of questions and all of those pieces. So we have to be able to kind of open up the books of our practice. We have to be ready to kind of answer the questions. We have to be ready to take a critical eye to what we've built and acknowledge the down and acknowledge the good and really kind of lay it all out there to get the best deal. But knowing your why is really, really important regardless of what you're doing, whether DSO or private. And and if you don't know that, then you're not ready to walk down either of these paths. Yeah, I've got a a big speech for about 300 dentists in Atlanta at the Hinman meeting coming up this Monday, and it's going to be about just being prepared. Mm -hmm. It's being prepared, and I think that so many times at dentists, they're extremely prepared for the clinical part of their lives. 
Mm-hmm. They are ready for a patient at 8 o'clock. They've looked at the x-rays. They've done the treatment plan. They know exactly what they're going to do. They're confident in the materials they're using. They're confident in their team. But they put that $1,000 thing all of a sudden in their software, and that somehow ends up on the spreadsheet, and there's some revenue, and there's expenses that went in there. But they're not prepared to do anything with it after that. Yep. I don't understand. I know. And so I guess the motivation in closing here is let's no matter what road you go down with the transition, you know, selling private or selling to a private equity, just get your house in order, be prepared and kind of know what your options are and be willing to invest in a good team to guide you through it. Absolutely. And you, and you know, if you're a longtime listener, you know that we are not a walking advertisement. We don't have sponsors, all of the things. But I do think that the education that you get from hiring an expert to do these things for you is invaluable mm-hmm. and really does allow you to focus on what your why is and what you want out of it when you're not trying to worry about equities and earnouts and cash and you know like you're not trying to negotiate that for yourself you have someone who explains that and then you figure out how it kind of builds into your life or you, you let someone else kind of guide you to the companies that are a good fit based on your goals like those things are what NDP seven pillars and King Waters. That's what we do, right? Mm-hmm. We help educate you so you can make the best decision for you and your career life. And so that's what I hope this episode did for some of you. If you're a seller listening, we have that corporate series. You can listen back. I don't know the numbers, but you can listen back. We also have an episode, which I think I'm not sure if it still is, but used to be one of our highest listened episodes. It's called Be a Leader. It's more seller focused. Use these resources, ask questions and reach out to us if you have questions. Yeah. And when you say reach out to us, one of the things that we love to do is prior to us taking on any client, we review financial statements, you know, so that's where something where we would look at your financial statements, look at tax returns, no cost, help you determine what the value of your business is, both on the private side and the private equity side. We're able to do that in a matter of 30 minutes of prep time and spending 30 minutes to an hour. So if there's anybody that's listening that feels that they would like to see high level what the value of their business is, you know, simply just reach out to NDP or Seven Pillars and we're happy to review that for you again at no cost. Absolutely. All right, team, that's all we have for today. Thank you for joining us on episode 97 of Transition Talk. Be sure to check out our corporate transition series for more on the PE and DSO Talk. And as always, make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. Subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, friends. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys.